Welcome to the Faith Assembly Podcast. We're so glad that you joined us today. It is our desire at Faith to help you connect, grow, and go in your walk with God. We hope you're encouraged by this message from Pastor Steve. Well, hey, are you ready to get in the Word together this morning? Amen. Praise the Lord. We are going to continue our series this morning, The Blessed Life. Uh, before we do that, I'm going to ask our ushers, if you would go out in the foyer and check and see how many grown folks are gathered around the Pac-Man machine for just, before we get started here. So, uh, no, just kidding. Uh, hopefully they're all here. But I just do want to give you this little forewarning. I can see you through those glass doors. If you, if you slide out this morning to go play Pac-Man, I will know it. So, um, and I will call you out. So... Yeah, there we go. All right, good deal, good deal. Well, praise the Lord. Hey, last week we kicked off a series of messages that we entitled The Blessed Life. And uh, we're looking at an excerpt from Jesus' teaching in Matthew chapter 5. The greater body of this teaching canvases chapters 5 through chapter 7. It's a body of of Jesus' teaching that we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, But Jesus begins with several statements in particular in the opening of chapter 5 that we know more commonly as the Beatitudes. So we're taking several weeks here just to move through these uh, principles that Jesus taught, these uh, Jesus-pronounced blessing upon certain characteristics and attitudes here. And we're taking some time uh, over the next several weeks to cover these. So just this past week, we kicked off Matthew chapter 5, if you're looking for that in your Bible. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 3, we heard Jesus say, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, uh, for those of you who are mathematicians today, we'll be in verse 4, which immediately precedes verse 3. And it says this, we hear Jesus saying these words, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In this passage of Scripture today, we find two key words, uh, and the one, the one describes the spiritual quality upon which blessing is bestowed. Blessed are those who mourn. And then one describes the nature of the blessing by saying, those who mourn will be comforted. Now, we're going to take just a a minute or two on each of these key words this morning just to bring a little clarification to it. And then, you know, Scripture, apart from life application and being able to say, how does that work for me, Uh, maybe just kind of dry and, and kind of nondescript. So we're going to look at the life of the psalmist David and some of his experiences and see how we are blessed by being poor in spirit. Blessed are, not poor in spirit, those who mourn. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I know when I mentioned mourning this morning, when I said blessed are those who mourn, like all of you got really excited there all at one time. I know that you did. You're like, wow, this is going to be a barn burner today. I'm so pleased to learn about how I can be blessed through mourning. Uh, but I believe you're going to see the, the meaning here as we begin to pull through. But I know, you know, as I said, it doesn't sound like much fun because let me give you the meaning of that Greek word mourn. In the original language, it means to mourn. 
Okay? It, it is the literal act or the feeling of grief. And the difference here in this verse, however, is the application. It's the application. It's not so much that, that mourning is a posture or characteristic we adopt just for the sake of being sad all the time. You've heard me say it before. If you're a believer, if you're happy in Jesus, if you're happy and you know it, tell your face. Amen? Uh, amen. Some of us as believers, if we're happy, we need to tell our face, right? Because it needs to know because sometimes it's not showing on us that we're really happy in Jesus. So we, listen, this verse has nothing to do with that we grieve uh, the things that make us sorrowful. It's not, it's not that we grieve, but rather what we grieve that makes the difference in our lives. And we'll see this more clearly as we move along. Now, before you get concerned about this, let me reassure you that life in Christ is abundant and it's joyful and it's blessed and it is the happiest life that you can ever live. So when you hear me say this morning, blessed are they who mourn, don't, don't take that to a different place and say, ah, here it comes, I knew it. No, 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 no. Life in Christ is abundant, blessed, and a joyful life. So we're not promoting a message today that says, suggests that you have to be sad in order to be right with God. Now, I know that there are, there are some people in this world who think that you're not really serving Jesus unless you're miserable. But that's not what Scripture teaches us, right? The emphasis of this verse is not that God wants you to be unhappy or sorrowful, Grief, you know, as we think about it, has to do with an emotional anguish that we feel at a time of loss or a time of deep hurt. You know, we, we mourn at the loss of a loved one. We mourn at the passing of seasons in our lives and, and situations. But the implication here, however, is not one of natural sorrow, but it's rather one of spiritual sorrow. Last week we spoke about uh, in that verse where it says blessed are the poor in spirit that, that that does not denote a material or a natural poverty but it was a spiritual poverty as we consider our position before God in realizing that apart from him we are spiritually bankrupt. Likewise in this verse the same is true. This is not about us just being sad and woe is me all the time just for the sake of being it but it is a grief that we experience as we realize our state as sinful beings before a holy God very simply and I'm going to illustrate that for you here in just a minute now we're going to move on here to the word comforted this is the nature of the blessing that word comforted is our second key word in this verse and I will give you some interesting definitions here Strong's defines this word used here for comforted as being to be called near. I like Thayer's definition better because he says that this word for comforted means to call to one side. So if we read this in context now, Jesus is saying to the believer, blessed are those who mourn because you're going to be called to my side. You're going to be drawn near. How many of you want to be close to Jesus? How many of you want to be near to God? 
You want to be in his presence. You value that highly in your life. And daily you seek him and daily you long for him. And, you know, there are times and seasons in your life that you're looking around and saying, where is God? It just seems like his presence has withdrawn, been withdrawn from me. Well, if you're in that state today, I want you to consider closely what I'm going to tell you this morning. If you're looking around this morning saying, where is God? I want you to really, really pay attention to what I'm about to tell you next. Being called near, being close to God, being in the presence of the Almighty is something that we see as a prevalent theme in the life of David. It was an often expressed part of his worship. It was an often expressed prayer request. Lord, let me be near you. God, draw me near. Let me be in your presence. And David, of course, lived before the time of Christ and his finished ministry here on earth. And he lived in an era before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit as we now know it. David lived under the dispensation of the law. And those of you that are familiar with the difference between the Old and the New Testament, you read a lot in the Old Testament about the sacrificial system and how for the covering of sin you had to come with certain gifts and those gifts had to be slaughtered and those gifts had to be offered to the Lord as a covering for sin. That is the period in time in which David lived. And also, David lived in a period where God's dealing and dwelling with man was very different than it is today. In our time, we come to the altar or we make an altar wherever we are. We bow our hearts and we pray and we say that once we've confessed our fault and we've accepted Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, then the presence of the Lord, the Holy Spirit, then resides in us. He resides with us. In David's time, the idea that God dwelt at the church was not figurative, but very much literal. You can read it in Exodus when, when God is instructing Moses on the construction of the wilderness tabernacle. In the Old Testament tabernacle, even in the temple, there was a special place that was in the tabernacle in the temple, and it was called the Holy of Holies. And that is where God would send his spirit to dwell there and he would encamp with men. In the Old Testament, we read several times of the Holy Spirit that how, how that men, the spirit of the Lord came upon people. There would be certain tasks like there would be a giant to be slain. There would be a conquest to be made. And it, it says oftentimes in the Old Testament that the Spirit of the Lord came upon choice servants of God, that they were used for that particular thing. And the Holy Spirit would empower them and overshadow them in order to, for that miraculous thing to be done. But nowhere do we read in the Old Testament that the Spirit of the Lord came and took up residence in someone else. It wasn't until after Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And, and the, it wasn't until after, actually, after Jesus died and at the death of Jesus, at the crucifixion of Jesus, we, we read about how that temple veil, that same thing that separated common man from the presence of God, that it was torn in half 
from the top to the bottom, and it signifies for us that through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God, that you and I now can freely enter into and abide in the presence of God. We don't have to come to a specific place, although thank you for being so faithful to the house of God. I've been amazed this summer already at your faithfulness and being here week in and week out. It shows me your hunger and your desire to grow in the things of the Lord. But when Jesus died, we read about how that temple veil was rent into from the top to the bottom, and it signifies for us that through the finished work of Jesus, We can stand boldly in the presence of God. We can abide there with him. We don't have to necessarily be here, although the word says don't forsake the assembling together of the saints as some do. But how many of you feel Jesus at home? When you pray, when you worship the Lord, you feel Jesus at home. How many of you feel Jesus when you're riding in your car, when you're at the workplace, when you're out in the marketplace? You can just, all you've got to do is whisper the name of Jesus and you feel his presence there in that moment. David didn't have that luxury. He didn't didn't have that in his life. He literally had to be, to be close to God, he had to be in proximity to the house of the Lord. Because that is where God confined during that dispensation his Holy Spirit, apart from specific times, he confined his Holy Spirit to the Holy of Holies, to the holy place. And there were times in David's life when... He was denied access to the tabernacle. Sometimes, most of the time, it was because of grievous circumstances. Sometimes it was because the king of Israel was tracking him down, trying to kill him, and he was having to hide in the woods. Sometimes it was because his own children were tracking him down and trying to kill him, and he was having to live in the woods and scurry around and hide, live a life of hiding. He couldn't just parade into the city and go to the temple gates. And it's in those moments when David has been flushed out from the presence of God, when he's been moved away from proximity and nearness to the presence of the Lord that we hear him so oftentimes cry out in the Psalms in various ways. Like Psalm 27 verse 4, David says this, One thing I ask from the Lord, and this only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. What David's saying here is the priority of my life, the preeminent thing in my life is that I could be close to God. Where God is is where I want to be. Come on, somebody. He said where God is is where I want to be. And see, here's the thing. David understood the value of being called near to the Lord's side. David understood the value of what Jesus says when he said, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, called near to the side. Let me tell you something today, church. There is a great value in being close to Jesus. There's a great value of living and exercising and experiencing the presence of God in your life. David continues here, and he shares with us some of that value. When we're called near, as Jesus expressed in in the Beatitude, here's some of what we might expect, and David continues here in verse 5. 
He says, for in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent and set me high upon a rock. And then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me at his sacred tent, and I will sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. How many of you want to experience Psalm 27.5? To, to just be, to like when things are not so well, that you're just called in, that the, the Lord just pulls you in. The imagery here we get from that, from that Greek word that means to be called to one side, it's almost like, how many of your parents in the room? And you remember when those little guys were small, and they, would, they, would, they were just learning to get around real good, and they, they weren't quite so coordinated, and they would fall, and they'd bump their head, or they'd skin their knee, or whatever it was, and you'd say, oh, poor baby. Come here and let mama love you. And, and we would pull them in close to the side. That's the, that's the mental imagery that we need to have here when we hear Jesus say, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. In the storm, in the trial, in the tribulation of life, in the difficulty that life brings, Jesus says, if we are a people who are mournful in spirit, then we're going to be pulled in to his side. We're going to be offered shelter, David says. He's going to hide me in the shelter of his sacred tent. He's going to set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. Now listen to David here in verse 7, and we're going to come back to this principle later, but Psalm 27, verse 7, David ends this little petition here this way, and he says, Hear my voice when I call, Lord, and be merciful and answer me. What was the request? All the way back to verse 4, One thing I ask from the Lord, and that only do I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. That is the petition, that is the request of God. Lord, let me draw near to you. Let me be close to you. And then he ends with this heartfelt plea. Hear my voice when I call, Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. I've got to have it. I've got to have it in my life. Psalm 42, 1, as the deer pants for the streams of water, so my soul pants for you, my God. Psalm 84, 10, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than to dwell in the tents of the wicked. I want you to notice what David says here. I would rather stand at the threshold of God's house than I had to go into the most luxurious place of the wicked. Take the whole world, but give me Jesus. I don't care if i got to stand at the threshold. I'd rather stand at the threshold of God's glory than I had to indulge in the finest that this life has to bring. Better is one day in your courts. And it, it just, the, just the, the expression that's there. One day in your presence. God. One day on the fringe of your presence is better than a thousand anyplace else. 
And David said later on in the Psalms 122, we read, David said, hey, I was glad. I was glad. This man knows what it's like to be pursued by the adversary. He knows what it's like to be chased away from the presence of God and to allow circumstances into his life that have driven him out. And finally he comes to this point in life and he says, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. I mean, I'm fired up about being in the presence of God. And we get a clue from David as to the fuller meaning of this beatitude and what it might mean for those who mourn to be called close to the Lord's side. After seeing, having seen the psalmist's passion for the presence of the Lord, and it's only a sample of the things that we see and hear him say that we've covered this morning, we understand that many of these things are expressed as prayer requests to God. Lord, I'm seeking after you. Lord, let me be near you. Lord, I long for you. And we return again to chapter 27, and I remind you that David said, Hear my voice when I call, Lord, and be merciful to me and answer me. This is my prayer. One thing do I seek. One thing do I desire, and that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. In Psalm 66, David teaches us another powerful lesson. He says, come and hear all you who fear God. And let me tell you what he has done for me. I cried out to him with my mouth. And his praise was on my tongue. But if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. The prevailing prayer of David's life is, God, let me be near to you. David said, if I had cherished sin in my heart, he would not have listened to me. If you're taking notes this morning, we find the same principle in Proverbs 15, 29. Proverbs 28, verse 8. We read it in Isaiah 1, and ch- verse 15. John chapter 9, verse 31. James chapter 4, verse 3. We find it over and over again. Isaiah 1, God says, hey, put away the foolishness of vain religion if you're not going to have your heart near to me. If all you're going to do is come and go through the motions, but you're going to regard iniquity in your heart, leave it alone. Let it go. It's making me sick, honestly. You read Isaiah 1. That's what it says. And then he comes to verse 18. He says, Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins may be as scarlet, they can be washed and made whiter than snow. That sin, that thing that's been keeping you out of the presence of God, that thing that has caused me to spew you out of my mouth, that thing that has caused me to turn a deaf ear to your plea, that very thing, if you will confess it and regard it no longer in your heart, if you'll be like Paul and say, everything that I thought was gain, I now count as loss for the excellency of knowing him, 
Jesus says, I'll call you near. I'll call you near. The key to all of this is that we have continual communion and fellowship with the Lord through prayer. And that is the means by which we enter into and experience the richness of the Lord's presence in our lives. Prayer is the way that we encounter that comfort, that drawing near that Jesus speaks of in the Beatitude. And David said, if I regarded iniquity in my heart, he won't hear me. In the line of communication, if the line of communication is severed by my regard for sin, then I cannot know the comfort that has been promised by Christ. I want to offer you a different term here as we bring this message to a close, and that term is repentance. Repentance, as defined by Webster, goes this way. Sorrow for anything done. The pain or grief which a person experiences in consequence of the injury or inconvenience produced by his own conduct. Listen. The fact of being separated from God, the fact of missing out on the comfort found in his presence is the consequence of sinful actions. The Bible says that the first step towards a right relationship with God is repentance. Acts 2.38, they came and they asked Peter, what must they do to be saved after that great sermon that he delivered on the day of Pentecost that I wish so badly I had wrote? And Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, and the end thereof is that you will be drawn near to the side of the Lord through the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. We've got a problem in the church today. Not necessarily this one, but the universal church, and that is that we have ceased to mourn sin. We have ceased to be remorseful. As a matter of fact, we swing our doors wide and we welcome in the most perverse of lifestyles and we say, you belong. And indeed, anybody that wants to come through this door belongs in the pew, but not every one of them belongs in the pulpit. Not everyone that comes in can we put the stamp of ordination on and say, you're good. We've come to a place where what God has labeled as evil, we're calling good. And what God has called good in many instances, we're saying is evil. Can I tell you something? That the exclusivity of righteousness through the blood of Jesus Christ is not evil. Can I tell you something that the pursuit of holiness, which means living right before God, set apart in a sinful world, being different than the world that we're in, is not sinful. It's not evil. It's good. It bears God's stamp of goodness on it. That word repent, as used by Peter there in Acts 2.38, it means to think differently afterwards. 
Repentance, you see, is not just the mechanics of confessing what I've done, but it's being sorry for having done it. It's grieving the fact that I have sinned against God. It's an agreement with God in saying what he has said is good is good and what he has said is evil is evil. It's a turning away from those things and not regarding them in our hearts and not entertaining them in our thoughts and certainly as we trust the Holy Spirit, avoiding the physical participation in those things. It's grieving us that we've hurt God. We confess our sinful actions, yes. We think differently about them afterwards. We don't continue in them. We don't regard them lightly. The source of our mourning should be that we recognize things in our own lives that are breaking the heart of God, and it should break ours as well. That's when Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are repentant. Blessed are those who are sorrowful that you've allowed sin to have its way in your life because you're going to be drawn near. You're going to be drawn near. You're going to be comforted. In another place in the psalm, we see David after he fell into adultery with Bathsheba and he's crying out to God not to take his presence away and in that instance he teaches us this powerful lesson Psalm 51 17 that says the sacrifices to God the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit a broken and a contrite heart these things oh God you will not despise you may tell you what God does despise pride Arrogance, something that stands even in his presence or before his grace and says, you know what, I'm getting what I'm getting because I'm getting what I deserve. No, you're not. I'm not. I am wretched and I am undone. And I find sometimes even in myself that I'm not as sorry for the hurt that I've caused him as I should be. The repentant heart is a heart that opens the lines of communication between God and a fallen man. Prayer and adoration are the vehicles that usher the presence of God into our lives. Psalm 16, 11, David says, You will show me the path of, of life, and in your presence is the fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. I don't know about you, but I want to live, and I want to walk, and I want to move in the fullness of joy and in the pleasures that, that he provides. Now hear this and understand me today. None of this means that we're going to live perfect lives. We're, we're not going to live perfect lives, nor do we have to, to experience the presence of God or to be in right relationship with Him and experience the comfort that He provides. None of this means that we're not permitted to fail. And the truth is that we will. In Romans chapter 7, Paul ponders his own struggles with his sinful desires and the tendencies for, that he has for all of us to hear. And this is what Paul said. I have a hard time understanding what's going on in my life, spiritually. Because the things that I want to do, 
the things that I desire to do, the things that I know are right for me to do, I don't do those things. I find it very difficult and challenging to do those things. But the things I know are displeasing to God. The things I know that I shouldn't do. Those things I can do. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Somebody cut you off in traffic on the way to church this morning, glory, and you found out how easy it was. Somebody jumped line on you at the Burger King. Or Troy at the hot dog stand. And you found out how easy it was for that sinful nature just to well back up inside of you and want to take over again. But here's the distinctive about Paul's statement. He didn't just say, it's the things I know I shouldn't do. Because we've made church so much like Tiana sang about earlier, about the do and the don't and the religion and all that stuff. He didn't specify those things as the things I shouldn't do. He said, those things that I hate. Those, those things that I hate, those are the things I find it so easy to do. Can I tell you today that a repentant life is not about walking in perfection, but a repentant life is about viewing morality in the same way that God views morality. And understanding that when you transgress against the law of God's righteousness, you are breaking the heart of God. And he loved you so much that he sent his only begotten son that whoever believed in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And there's something about that. When we fail him, it just ought to tear us up on the inside. We ought not be okay with it. Too often, church, we may not be experiencing the fullness of God's presence in our lives because we don't really hate the things that we've understood to be transgressions against God's law. Our problem is that many times we fail God and we know it and we don't hate it. We don't take those things seriously. We're not mournful when we fail. We make light of our shortfalls. We'll even go so far as to make jokes about it just to ease our conscience and excuse ourselves and address sinful actions as being just the way we are. Well, the truth of the matter is that God's not looking at you just as you are. He's viewing you through the lens of what he has in mind for your life. And it breaks his heart when we allow the weight of sin to beset us in this race of faith so much that we can't strive towards the destiny that he has in mind for us. Spiritual brokenness. A heart that says, God, I know I'm not perfect. And I fail you all the time. But please help me. Please add your strength to my weakness, to the weakness in my life, and help me fulfill the potential that you've destined for my life. And Jesus says that attitude is going to move the heart of God. That spirit, that contrite spirit, that broken heart is going to move the heart of God as a loving father to just pull you in. 
and say, hey, I know you're a little clumsy, but come on here and let me comfort you. I I know you're a little weak, but come on and, and, and let me add my strength to your weakness. Let me... Let me just draw you near and assure you that everything's going to be all right. Blessed are they that mourn. They that have a spirit of repentance. For they shall be comforted. We hope you enjoyed this inspirational message today. If you would like more information about Faith Assembly, please visit us on the web at faith-assembly.org. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you have a blessed day.